If you could go back in time and give yourself one sage piece of advice, what would it be? I'm Sam East, and this is Lessons to My Younger Self, the podcast. You can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. That saying might as well be Carmi Levy's life mantra. You might recognize Carmi as the Canadian technology journalist who's made a ton of appearances on TV news and other shows, usually giving insight into how technology shapes how we work and live. I briefly had a chance to work with Carmi in London, Ontario back in 2018. And in the hallways, he was always an absolute class act, a real mensch. That's Yiddish, by the way, for a person of integrity and honor. But I didn't ask Carmi to be on the podcast to talk about the latest iPhone, though I'm sure he would give us a perfect rundown. In 2013, Carmi suffered a stroke. And while I didn't know him at the time, I'm struck by the ways in which he writes about the experience through his many very open, very vulnerable posts on social media. And even more so, the shift in perspective after going through such a traumatic event. Carmi is attuned to the bright side. As a kid, he spent a lot of time in hospital getting procedures, physio, and so forth because of a degenerative disease in his hips. And while this wasn't the ideal situation for a kid, it also gave young Carmi the insight that if he got to wake up that day, he was doing all right. And you'll see in our conversation how that theme has woven through his entire life. I got a chance to speak to Carmi earlier this year while we were still in a COVID lockdown. Hardly a day goes by that like the, the rules don't change again because something happens and it's so you ride it like a surfer. No biggie. Exactly. You learn to ride the waves. You can't stop the waves, but you learn to, to manage, navigate through them, right? Yeah. You know, I, we've had we have family who you know, were in Europe during the Second World War, some who lived in London. And they said, you know what, like there, no one's dropping bombs on my head. You know, everything being relative, this is OK. We, we know how to get through this. It's not that big of a deal. All things considered. I always like to ask everyone that I'm talking to, what would you like to get out of the conversation today? So I think um, really, I, I, you know, I'll sort of go back to your perspective on, you know, focusing on my stroke experience. I think that's probably the good kind of hinge point, the good focal mm-hmm. point. Um, it, it largely defines who I am. Um, Mm -hmm. it defines the kind of life that I want to lead. Something lousy happened to me. Um, Mm -hmm. I found a way to find the light. And you always document the ways in which you find the silver lining in every moment. You even, you know, as an example, just one example, wrote up a whole post in finding the beauty of shoveling snow after a storm, which (laughs) for even the most well-adjusted Canadians, that's still a pain in the butt. So did the Silver Linings playbook, so to speak, come about because of your stroke or was it something your family taught you? I think uh, it it goes back to childhood, most definitely. I think, you know, being alone in a hospital at night, I think teaches you a lot of things. So when you're four years old and your parents leave and then it's just you, like I was, I was able to get out of bed and get into a, a wheelchair and, you know, wander around the hospital and then come back to my ward room and, you know, tell my other, other, you know, my friends in the ward room, you know, what I saw. They couldn't get out. I was a kid next to me who had cancer, another one who was in traction. They couldn't move. I could. And I think you kind of learn that you can't change what happens to you. In other words, I, I can't make the pandemic go away. I can't stop myself from getting sick. I can't stop myself from being in a hospital. 
But once the pandemic happens, once I'm sick, once I'm in a hospital, I can certainly change how I choose to respond to it. You're in control of that. And I learned that at an early age is that, you know, you know look at what you have, look at what you're capable of and work with that. And, and you can find that light. You know, the light was, I got to explore a hospital. What kid gets to do that? And I, I got to learn things about this place that no one could at the age of four and five. I mean, that's, you know, in retrospect, kind of cool. Uh, so it wasn't all bad, but I had to look for it. And if I just lay there and, you know, you know, said, well, was me, what would I have gotten out of that experience? And so, you know, day, in the day-to-day life, that's, that's how I choose to look at the world is, yeah, it's a tough world. There's a lot of, you know, adversity that's, that's doled out toward all of us. We're all riding the wave and doing the best that we can. Um, but rather than focusing on what we don't have or you know, the hardships that we face, Focus on what you're going to do about them. And I, I know it sounds trite. It sounds incredibly naive. Uh, but I find that's really been a helpful way to kind of shape my worldview and hopefully shape the worldview of those around me as well for the better. OK, so this time in the hospital as a very young kid seems like it was really formative for you, because I'm not sure many people at four years old, sometimes even 40 years old, would internalize this many life lessons while going through some pretty challenging stuff at a hospital. I remember being in a, it was like an operating room. I remember being like, like lying on the, and I wasn't having surgery, but it was some kind of procedure and it was painful. They were playing with my legs and whatnot. And I, I remember, um, the, one of my nurses who I knew came in with me, um, and her name was Mrs. Crow. And Mrs. Crow used to give me kisses with her nose and was just this woman that to this day, decades later, I still remember like it was yesterday. Um, and she held my hand and told me that everything would be okay. And I was crying and wailing and whatever. But when Mrs. Crow, when I saw her, I connected with her. And I trusted that it would be okay because she told me that it would be. And I realized then that, you know, like she had no idea how it was going to play out. But she took the time to make sure that I felt okay. She was kind in, in a place that wasn't always that kind. Um, and I learned sometimes even the smallest of gestures, just standing there over me, making sure that I saw that she was there. That was enough. And I was able to get through that procedure. And so I think, you know, looking forward, it's just show up. Like, it doesn't matter. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. But when people are going through something, if you have the ability to be there in some way, even if it isn't actually doing anything physical or tangible, then by all means, take the opportunity to do that. Because simply showing up can make the difference between, you know, lying on a table and wailing away or feeling comfortable that everything is going to be okay when this is all said and done. But it's interesting you bring up the just being there because we tend to be so solution oriented. So when someone else is going through something, if the only thing to do is be with that person instead of trying to do or say the right thing to make it better, people tend to run away from the vulnerability of just being we are conditioned as a society to uh, to have solutions. If you look at what defines success in life, it's the acquisition of goods, it's the achievement of certain milestones, it's having you know certain tick boxes checked off, uh, and and that defines success. So we assume that when someone needs us to just be there, we assume that we have to tick some box somewhere. But no, we don't have to. We just simply have to be there for them. And it's a very it's it's a difference between tangible and intangible. We're so focused on the tangible that we forget the intangibles. We forget the softer things that make people want to be with us. For example, when a, you know, a friend loses a loved one, you know, most of us will shy away. Most of us will hesitate
wait to call. I, I remember, you know, having lost my dad, having lost my in-laws, and people wouldn't want to talk to me. I lost my brother. People wouldn't want to talk to me because they were afraid of saying the wrong thing. And the reality is there is no wrong thing. There's no script for any of this. Just the fact that people show up, that's all we need. And I think in, in this you know, crazy topsy-turvy world where there's so much uncertainty and so much worry, just knowing that your peeps are there for you, that's mm -hmm. all it takes. It seems like a small thing. It seems mundane. Um, but you know, like I've learned, small things are big things. That really seems to be the motif, the theme in what you post. And for anyone listening who does follow you, you document the everyday, but you spotlight the everyday in such a way that it feels like an event, which is a real departure from the very carefully selected and filtered posts that make it to people's feeds. Is this sort of like your, your very own gratitude journal on full display? It certainly is. I mean, I've been doing this for, you know, for, for years and, and I started it just because I'm a writer and I just needed a place to write. And, but over time, I realized that the things that I was focusing on were the things that I was dealing with day to day. So, mm -hmm. you know, walking the dog, raising the kids, making breakfast, like whatever it was, it, it didn't matter, you know, what that what was, but it turns out that it was the minutia of everyday life because that was a reflection of what I was experiencing. And the more I did that, the more I realized, wow, I can paint a really cool picture, both with words and with, with photographs. Uh, that, you know, wouldn't otherwise get told, right? When you look at what most people are sharing on social media, it's, it's the, it's the carefully curated, it's the, uh, you know, beautifully presented, perfectly lit, um, you know, you, you never want to see the dark side or, you know, the hardships that people experience. And I thought, no, you know what, let's just, let's, let's just write it the way it is. And because mm -hmm. if I'm experiencing it, chances are other people are as well. And I felt, over time that we don't do enough to record those in between, you know, little mini moments. And, you know, you, you, you may get to the ends of your life and go, you know, what did I accomplish on this planet? Well, I can look back at all the things that I've written and shared. And there are like countless thousands of tiny little moments, vignettes, every single day that I take the time to, to, to jot that out and to share that thought. I now have that record and my, my wife and kids have that record and total strangers have that record and I can touch them and encourage them in ways that I wouldn't otherwise be able to if I hadn't taken the time to share that. So, it, it, you know, it is a gratitude journal, but it's also a, you know what, this is life and mm. it's, it's imperfect, it's, 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 it's unpredictable, but it's mine and I think it's beautiful even if it does seem small and trivial. It sounds like mindfulness is really a pillar for you in your life. I think you're you're bang on. And I think it has to be. Having had a stroke at an early age, I think has it changes you when you're, you know, lying on the ground and you realize you can't move and you can't talk and you know what's happening. I was fully conscious of what was occurring to me as I was experiencing this health event. And mm -hmm. and then you think about it, you almost feel like you're falling down uh, a rabbit hole backwards and you see the light getting smaller at the top and you wonder, how am I going to get back? How do I get back to where I was? And you think, did I make the best use of the time that I had? You know, in terms of that mindfulness, we're all given whatever time we're given, whatever, you know, blink of an eye we're given on this planet. It's up to us to make the best of it and to not squander it and to not waste it on things that aren't value added, that don't 
fix the world around us or that don't um, drive kindness into the lives of others that don't help others see brightness. It sounds trite and it sounds like I'm, you know, standing on a mountaintop just preaching, but the truth of the matter is, is I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and go, what did you, what did, what did you accomplish and not have an answer? Uh, I want to at least have some answer that maybe plant some seeds in the minds and lives of others so that they'll carry that forward. Yeah, I'm taking some courses on mindfulness and so much of what you're saying applies here. The research is clear. You can really rewire mm -hmm. your brain to be more grateful, to be more aware. It takes a lot of time, but it's an actual neural pathway right that you can form after repeated behaviors, just like anything else. And I really want to get into how your perspective and approach to life shifted after the experience with your stroke. But can you first detail what happened on that summer day in 2013? You were riding your bike on your way home. Yeah. So, uh, you know, August 5th, 2013, I'm, I'm on my bike. And anyone who knows me, I'm an avid cyclist, grew up in Montreal. So, you know, you get around on a bike if you live in Montreal. Um, and obviously have kept that up over the years. It's a wonderful way to get around, I commute to work, all that good stuff. And I had finished my writing for the day and decided I was going to go out and take a nice long ride in the countryside. And as I was coming back from the ride, I came across a, a construction zone and it literally blocked my way back to the house. I was about you know eight or nine kilometers from the house and I wasn't able to continue. So I had to turn around. I had to do, make a U-turn on my bike. And as I made the U-turn, I kind of flipped my head over my shoulder to make sure that I wasn't you know, riding into traffic. And in doing so, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I accidentally tore my left carotid artery. So like, you know, who knew? Like, who knows that you can do that? That you can like have just an accident by moving your head the wrong way. And um, I immediately got a really big headache. But nobody thinks that, you know, you know, oh, I'm, I, I've just torn my artery. You just think it's a hot day. I've been riding hard for the last couple of hours. Maybe I'm sore. Yeah. Yeah. And I, now I'm annoyed because I have this big detour before I can get home. I've got to go even further. Um, so, you know, now I've got a headache. So I, you know, text my wife saying, you know, I'm going to be late and now I'm really ticked off, get back on the bike and keep riding home. You know, the headache keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And, and as I get to the house, I'm, I park the bike and I'm walking inside and I can, I'm looking at the ground and I can see like floaters in my eye. And again, you know, you're not thinking I'm going, I'm having, I'm going to have a stroke or I've done some major damage to my body because you're just thinking again, it's just a hot day. Uh, and I was working out. So I take a shower, I take a nap, and, and, and I still, I take something for my headache, and it still isn't feeling better a couple of hours later. Um, I go to make, I have barbecue. And so I'm literally standing out on the back deck, and I'm, I'm making chicken for the family. And all of a sudden, I just, I feel faint. And I, I almost feel like, I, I, don't, I don't feel like I collapsed as much as I slid into the ground. And, and, I, and again, just thought, you know, I was hot, not feeling well. I land on the ground, wrapped kind of halfway around the barbecue. How I didn't burn myself, I don't know. Lucky, very lucky there. And I'm lying on the ground. And my wife, who is a teacher, and it was August, so she was preparing for, for the school year. She saw what happened. She came outside and she just thought I'd fainted. Everyone thought I'd just fainted. But as she's asking me questions, I realize I can't talk. And I'm, and I, I can, I can kind of answer, yeah, no. Okay. And, and I can, you know, maybe monosyllables, but I can't express what my think, what I'm thinking. So my mind is fully aware. 4K, you, you know, super high def, you name it. I know what's going on. 
And I have the cognitive ability to figure out, oh, this is bad. Like this is, I didn't just faint. Something's going on in my brain. I'm thinking possibly stroke or something like that. Um, but what had happened, and, and I couldn't, couldn't speak. And then I realized I couldn't move. My whole right side was paralyzed. And when, when you don't have motion on that side, it, it feels like just a ton of bricks. Like you just can't move. So I'm lying there and I, I keep my wife sort of propping me up and I keep falling to the right, falling to the right because I can't keep myself up. She gets me uh, um, orange juice and same thing. I can barely drink it because, again, I don't have my whole right side of my face. So, you know, call 911. Kids are home. Lord knows how this is affecting them watching this play out in real time. But we're lucky to live in a country where we have this healthcare. And I'm, I was literally a 10-minute drive away from one of the top research hospitals in the, in the country, where, as it turns out, they have a crack neurology team who were able to figure out what was going on. And you don't wait. The you know, stroke protocol is they take you right in. And what had happened was, after they ran a million tests on me, was that uh, in, in tearing my carotid artery at the time, you know, obviously, I was lucky that I didn't bleed out. But then a few hours later, what happened was the, the, the wound in the artery, it, it creates a disruption in the blood flow, which then sent clots into my brain. And that's what caused, it's called an ischemic stroke. And so I'm one of the lucky ones. I got immediate help um, within that sort of golden window of opportunity, because obviously, the longer you wait, the more damage there is. Um, I didn't suffer any cognitive impact whatsoever. I, I'm a little dizzy sometimes, and my sense of balance, I will not be an Olympian gymnast ever. But I'm lucky I can still do all the things that I did before. And and I kept hearing these stories of people who shrugged it off, you know, were showing symptoms of stroke and, you know, told their their partners, nah, it's, I'm fine, you know, just waved it off. I'm just going to go sleep it off. And then by the time they finally got the help that they so desperately needed, it was too late. And the damage had already occurred and they were dealt, they were, they were forced to deal with lifelong deficits. So yeah, it was, it was a lousy moment in my life, but I, I think of where, where it could have gone that, you know, inflection point. And because of the decisions that my wife made and that she recognized immediately what was going on, um, I was able to walk out of the hospital um, and I'm able to walk and talk and do all the things that I do to this day. Has there been a day that's gone by where you don't in some way reflect every on day. these moments? Every moment of every day. Um, it defines me. Um, and I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be like, sometimes it bothers me because I know people look at me and they're like, how you doing, Carmi? And, and you can tell that they're looking at me differently, that they're expecting me to show some kind of symptoms or, you know, I'm the guy that had the stroke, um, mm. you know, 20 or 30 years before he probably should have. Because, um, mm. you know, guys my age just don't have strokes. But at the same time, I, I can't dwell on that. I can't dwell on how people perceive me. Mm. I can just dwell on the fact that I was given that chance. Because it, it's funny, I, I'm... I wasn't terrified, and to this day, I'm not terrified of dying. I, I was terrified of living in in that in between state. I was worried, and to this day, I still worry about um, the impact that that would have on those around me. I don't want to be that burden, and I certainly mm-hmm. don't want to lead, lead a life that is not at that level. And so, er- everything that I do um, revolves around that, whether I like it or not. And I can't make mm-hmm. it go away, but at the same time, I don't really think I want to, because um, if it makes me a better person, and I think it has. Um, it's forced me to focus on what matters and, and not take things for granted. Then again, I'll, I'll, I'll take that little bit of light and focus on that. What did the rehab and recovery look like after something like this? I imagine it really 
change the way that you had to live life day to day? They they liken it to forcing your brain to take a vacation. So like I was I was hmm. told to like you know stay in the house and not do anything, not work, not read, not do interviews, not you know engage my brain. Just don't stimulate. Exactly. Yeah. Turn it off and chill. You know, for me, it's not easy because uh, <laughs> you know, the first thing I want to do is just jump right back into it. And so it was hard because like, there's no, like, I've never been through this before. I have no idea how to disconnect. That's not my thing. I've always mm-hmm. had trouble taking vacations because you go on vacation and you're still, you know, I still want to do stuff. And <laughs> uh, so I was not a very good patient in that regard. But, um, you know, for about two or three weeks, I um, just literally allowed everyone around me to do everything for me. Um, and I just, I tried to just stay completely off the grid. Uh, did mm. I succeed? Uh, probably not, uh, <laughs> but I certainly tried. And it was important because the, you know, according to my neurologist, it's like, you know, your brain suffered a trauma. You've mm-hmm. got to give it a chance to kind of figure out, rewire itself um, mm. and sort of prepare for whatever comes afterward. And the only way to do that is to just really like turn off and let it do its thing. It's been nine years since you had your stroke. There's not a doubt in my mind just from talking to you today that you gained something from the experience. What did you gain from having a stroke, Carmi? Well, I think we're always doing that in life. We're always measuring things. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, did I come out ahead? You know, did I, lo- did I gain more than I lost? And, I, and this, this is going to sound super weird, but I do not regret having had a stroke. I do not regret having gotten sick. Um, I think everything happens for a reason. You know, the universe is going to do whatever the universe does. Uh, and again, it's, this is not a religious thing. It's whatever people believe, but there are things that happen that are way beyond our control and, and we simply can't change that. And I certainly couldn't change this, but I, I, I think I am better off because it, it really, it was a slap to the face. It forced me to realize that, you know what, maybe I wasn't appreciating things as much as I should have beforehand. Maybe I wasn't taking the time to spend with my family uh, as much mm-hmm. as I should have beforehand. Or maybe I just wasn't soaking it in as much as I could have. I, I, I don't think I appreciated the small moments uh, to the same degree. And if I look at my writing before this happens and my writing after this happened, there's a clear difference uh, in mm-hmm. terms of how much I, I, I value that. Uh, and I think it's made me a better person. Am I perfect? No, and I don't think you know, I don't think anyone is, and I don't think I ever will be. And that's not the goal. Um, but I'd, I'd I'd like to think that I'm getting more out of this life thing after the stroke than I ever was beforehand. I want other people to realize that it isn't just about having a stroke or a heart attack or any other health scare. It's about whatever life chooses to throw at you. How are you going to navigate it, and how are you going to improve things afterward? You've got to have an answer for that. And you've got to sort of use that as your guiding principle, because for some people, that's the only thing that's going to get them through. And in reality, that's what got me through. Looking back on it now, what do you wish you could tell yourself during the, the hardest parts of, of that experience? <laughs> that's, a, that's a loaded question and a great one. <laughs> um, you know, I, I probably would have, would have told myself to slow down um, because mm. I, I would get so far ahead of myself um, you know, I would think a week ahead, a month ahead, a year ahead, and I'd worry about things that I couldn't change way down the road. Just focus on getting out of bed. Just focusing, focus on learning how to walk again. Focus on getting your speech back. Focus on the small things that you can change today. Can you make the person in the bed next to you smile? Can you be polite to that nurse? Um, you know, can you have a, you know, a, a conversation with a doctor who recognizes you from your work and asks you, you know, about a recommendation for a smartphone. And so you're always looking for those opportunities to find that light 
And as long as you can do that, then you're fine. And so, and I, I think if I could tell myself is just stop worrying about long-term, focus mm-hmm. on the here and now, give yourself small victories, however small they are, and don't discount them. Don't minimize them because even a tiny victory, the tiniest, most trivial of victories is a victory. It really sounds like, especially after your stroke, you've thought about the kind of legacy that you want to leave behind. And legacy is really a sort of grandiose sounding word to people, but what does it mean to you? Um, how do you want to be remembered? At the end of the day, you know, we're a society that's so focused on stuff, right? We, we measure each other based on the car that we drive, the clothes that we wear, the house or the neighborhood that we live in. Um, you know, the professional achievements that we've had, the degrees that we've gotten. But, you know, we're all going to die at some point. Life is finite for all of us. Um, how are people going to remember you? Um, and, you know, you know, legacy is having the ability to kind of look beyond your time um, and ask, what seeds am I planting for whoever comes next? So finally here, we're going to talk to younger Carmi. If you could go back in time and talk to any version of younger Carmi, this could be, you know, when you mentioned when you were four or five years old mm-hmm. in the hospital, this could be Carmi from eight years ago, Carmi from yesterday. With all the experiences that you've had in your life up until this point, what would you pass on to a younger version of yourself? You know, I would tell myself to not cherish things. Uh, instead, cherish time cherish people, cherish experiences. These are all the things that we can't buy them. We can't make them. Um, we've only got them for a blink. Um, and once they're gone, they're gone. We can't get them back. Um, so, you know, when you, when you come this close as I have to losing that ability to speak, move, live, you know, you know be whole, um, when you get sick and then you come back from it, if you're lucky enough, you realize that what you once thought. And if I could tell my younger self, it's like what you think is important really isn't. Um, and all of these things might seem mundane. You know, maybe you want the big house and maybe you want the car that everyone oohs and ahs about. And you want everyone to be impressed with all of your achievements. But you, know, you, you always hear, don't sweat the small stuff. And I couldn't disagree more. I mean, that is, it's wrong. The small stuff is the big stuff. And I we should be sweating it. We should be thinking about those small moments. And when we think about stuff, we, we think about what others might think. And, and, you know, really, we shouldn't. Stuff doesn't matter. What other people think doesn't matter. Um, what you're squeezing out of the limited amount of time and bandwidth that you've been given on this planet, that's what matters most. And are you spending the, the time with the right people? Are you spending enough time with them? That matters. Are you impacting them as best you can? That matters as well. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you, Sam. This is uh, this has been just a, an absolute joy. Um, you know, I'm so used to talking about technology. Very rarely <laughs> do I do I talk about myself. This conversation was good for the soul. It was good for the soul. Thank you. This was this was awesome. A mensch, right through and through. If you want to see more insights from Carmi, and I swear it's like chicken soup with a soul, follow him at Carmi Levy. Our season finale wraps with friendship expert and coach Danielle Bayer Jackson. That's next week on Lessons to My Younger Self. I'm Sam East. You can follow me at underscore Sam East. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and share. Thank you for listening. <laughs>